Welcome to Book Reporter Talks To, a podcast from the Book Report Network, where we host in-depth conversations with authors about the books that we love. We know authors cannot travel everywhere, so we want to bring them to you, wherever you may be. Welcome to our latest episode of Book Reporter Talks To, where our guest today is the fabulous Hank Philby Ryan, and we are going to be talking about her latest thriller, One Wrong Word. She's a book reporter, bets on selection. I am writing my copy like as we speak, as soon as this is over, because it's going to be in the newsletter tonight. I am so excited about this book. Now, Hank is the USA Today bestselling author of 15 novels. I think I've read them all of suspense. She's won multiple, multiple prestigious awards for crime fiction, including five Agathas, five Anthonys, and the con- really coveted Mary Higgins Clark Award. And I remember how excited she was when she won that. In our book reporter review, Pamela Kramer had this to say, the final twist is truly unexpected. And we ultimately are appreciative of the engrossing tale and the nail-biting ending. And oh boy, do I totally agree with Pamela on this. So with that intro, welcome back, Hank. I'm so excited to be able to talk to you again. And let's start by you giving us an overview of One Wrong Word. Thank you. One Wrong Word. I love hearing you. I just could sit here and listen to you talk about <laughs> this. This is fantastic. And thank you for all your help. You're incredibly amazing. When I And I sort of teared up when I read Pamela's review, because she just so got it. You know, she just really got the essence of it. And there's there's just nothing better than hearing from a smart reader. So thank her words for me. Words As, worked. Uh, <laughs> My words yeah. worked. So that was good. <laughs> well, you know, the words, the power of words is the whole point. The power of words is what this book is about. Rumors and scandal and gossip and betrayal and revenge. And what a powerful weapon words are. Mm-hmm. And one wrong word can ruin your life. We know that. And no one knows that better than Arden Ward. Arden Ward is the main character. And she is a crisis management expert who realizes that she's now being forced to manage a crisis in her own life. She's been accused, falsely accused, of having an affair with a powerful client. Now, she would never do that. It's just not true. But her boss believes the scandal, believes it. And he fires her. He's about to fire her. But he gives her two weeks to save her job. And that is by repairing the reputation of Ned Bannister. Ned Bannister is a Boston mogul, a bigwig, who's been acquitted in a drunk driving fatality. But even though the jury found him not guilty, the court of public opinion thinks Ned Bannister is a killer. They still think so. And that has ruined Ned's life and his wife's life, and the lives of his two adorable children. So Arden uh, decides to stake her career, to use her last two weeks on the job to help this shattered family and to prove to the world that Ned Bannister is actually a good guy. But as the truth of the accident begins to emerge, so do Arden's doubts. (laughs) And she wonders if she's staking her career on... And using the power of her words, the skill that she has with words, to protect a murderer. Mm -hmm. And so it's really three smart women facing off in a high-stakes psychological cat and mouse game to prove their truth about a devastating crime. But which character is the cat and which character is the mouse? And that is one wrong word. That I just absolutely love that synopsis. And I also love that Cordelia is so upset. Because though he's not guilty, everyone keeps saying nice things about them. And she thought the court of law was going to be it. And then all of a sudden they'd be in good graces, invited to big parties again. And it's not quite working out that way for her. Isn't, really- that so, isn't that so interesting? Because one of the, that's exactly one of the reasons that I wrote this book. Is so, so many of us watch the big trials on TV and follow the news about them. And we have our own opinions yes. about the, the, the verdicts. And, you know, at the end of some trials, we say, ah, she got away with that. Or, you know, or he skated, you know, and we disagree. And the court of public opinion is so strong that it can overcome even a jury verdict. 
And in the book, Cordelia Bannister and Ned were hoping, praying for this not guilty verdict because they would get their lives back for the past year. You know, they've been skewered by the press and ignored by their friends. Their kids have been shunned and mocked at school because their father is a killer. And all they wanted was this not guilty verdict to make it all go away. But of course it didn't go away and it doesn't go away. And the sting and the taint of what happens in a trial like that, um, everybody else goes home, the jury goes home, the judge goes home, the lawyers go home. But the, but the person, the defendant is left with that cloud over them. And that's where Arden Ward comes in to make the public, uh, to give the other side of the story, to say that Ned really is a good guy. Um, but what if he isn't? But what if he isn't? And what if what's really going on? You know, something happened to you in the past that spurred the idea for this book. And it was something that happened a long time ago. So you kind of harbored it. So share that with us, because I think it's so interesting that this idea stayed with you. So tell us what happened. You know, I it's sort of fascinating how our subconsciouses keep things from us. And this book, One Wrong Word, was such a time release story. I mean, I knew I was writing about rumors and scandal and gossip and the power of words. I knew that. Um, but what I didn't realize until I was about a quarter of the way through the book was that it was about all those things. And it's a page turning, fast paced cat and mouse thriller. Um, but underneath, it was really about me. And I sat here at this very computer and I thought, oh, really, is that what this is about? And I considered whether I should go on right. because once I uh, you know, excavated my past, I thought maybe it's a little bit too personal to put in a book. And then I thought, no, this is a, no, this is a good idea. This happens to people. I'm going to do it. So very, very quickly, in answer to your question, when I was 19, and you have to imagine me at 19, it was so long ago. I was a worker bee in a political campaign. I loved working in politics. I loved the idea that I could change the world. I loved being part of that power system. Um, I but I was a worker bee. I was I was a gopher. I got coffee. I folded and stuffed envelopes, if you remember, doing things like that. And one day I was walking down the hall and I heard two of the campaign moguls talking and I heard my name. So, of course, I stopped to listen to hear what they were saying. And one of them was one of them was saying, um, can you believe what a crush the campaign manager, his name isn't Jim, but we'll just call him Jim. Can you believe what a crush Jim has on Hank? And I thought, well, that's weird. You know, I didn't know anything about that, but okay, that's interesting. And the other and the other man said, yes, I have heard that. And if Jim's wife ever gets wind of it, it is going to be a public relations disaster. Wow. As And so I'm still, I mean, I can't begin to tell you, Carol, the depth of my bewilderment at this point, because this was all new to me. So then the first guy says, you know, I think we're going to have to fire Hank. And I thought, fire me? Fire me? I think Jim's the problem. I think Jim is the problem. Little innocent me is not the problem. Right, right. But but they were going to fire me over it. Now the campaign ended, nobody got fired. I didn't get fired, Jim didn't get fired. But what they were willing to do was murder my reputation right. uh, because they didn't need little expendable, vulnerable, innocent little 19 year old me. They didn't need me, but they needed Jim. You know, they needed him. So I was the one that was about to be the victim. I was the one that was about to be whisked away. And, and again, my life would have been very different had that happened, especially since there would have been no way to stop the rumors about what happened. And I would have been tainted for that with that forever. Horrible, horrible. So when I wrote this book, I realized that that's actually what this was about, the sort of profound leftover anger and uh, bafflement and rage actually rage, about yeah. that. And also quickly, I'm sorry, but, and also the sort of the idea that I really hadn't stood up for myself, that I had, I had sort of sneaked away and not said anything. I was 19, it was 1969. I don't know what year it was, something like that. And I didn't stand up for myself. And so this book I mean, it is a twisty journey thriller. You know, I want you to miss your stop on the subway because you can't put it down. But now you know sort of the rest of the story, as they used to say. Underneath that 
story, that fictional story is sort of a love letter to my 19 year old self saying, you know, here's what you should have done, honey. Here's what you should have said. And I have to tell you, it was so much fun to write, to let Arden say and do, to let Arden Ward say and do what I should have said and done. And so it sort of knits up the past. It sort of, the book sort of fixes the past um, and let me uh, come to terms, come to terms with it and sort of have a little fictional do-over. And, really, and that's really what it's about. It's And you know, it's that moment of saying, what was I, what at 19? Like I didn't, couldn't sit there and go, well, wait, hold on a second. Cause you were vulnerable. You're like not in that position to say that at all, you know? Exactly. And that's what the book is about a little bit too, is, you know, how many of us have had something, someone say something about us right. that just isn't true. And we hear of it and we think, well, do I fight back? Do I defend right. myself? Do I laugh? Do I ignore it? Do I confront someone? What do I do? How do I handle this? And this is what Arden Ward does for a living. She helps mm -hmm. people decide how to handle a terrible situation like Ned Bannister or like people who have, uh, you know, corporate executives who have said something wrong or movie stars who have done something wrong. She shepherds them back to, you know, she repairs their relationships. That's what she does. And now suddenly she's having to do this for herself and she has to use her skills to take her power back. I mean, you know, this is what my books are all about empowerment They're, they start with an imbalance of power somebody takes power or uses power or or threatens someone with power and the equilibrium is off and my books are all about mostly women getting their power back taking their power back and coming out of the end of the book you know better and stronger and more confident than they were uh, at the beginning yeah, and it goes in so many different directions but i love that your character is this crisis management expert because that is so much of what is going on these days of something goes wrong and you bring somebody in. I mean, I will just give a little example because your publicist was doing it last week. Taylor Swift at the Grammys did not acknowledge Celine Dion. Okay. There could have been a million reasons for it. I could have been overwhelmed walking on stage, whatever, but backstage her publicity people made sure there was a picture with her and there were words going on and things like that. Because publicists are taking on that role, but a crisis manager, I find that it was such a different kind of a thing because it's not just to make you look good. It is to completely change your image going out with people of what you're doing and what's going on. So did you do a lot of research? Do you know somebody who does this? That's so interesting that you brought up the Taylor Swift uh, situation, because when I saw that, I thought, oh, no, you know, that they're going to have to fix that. And 30 seconds later, when it was over, there was her, they were hugging. And I thought those, I said to my husband, this is what my book is about. You know, this is what my book is about. This is, this is, this is a crisis. You know, somebody has managed that crisis and erased it. You know, they erased it and made it all back, made it all better. Um, you know, I've been a television reporter for 43 years. Yeah. And think of how many crisis management types I've talked to, because when something happens, when there's a when there's a verdict or when there's a, a victim or when there's a crisis or when there's a disaster and people don't know what to do, um, they call these crisis management experts. And we as reporters, when we're reporting on whatever story that is, those right. are the gatekeepers. You know, they say, you know, call Sally, don't call the victim, don't knock on her door and say, how did you feel when your son was whatever? Right. Um, you, you get pushed to these gatekeepers and the spinners and the persuaders and the fixers and the PR people who basically are trying to make reporters decide how to feel. Yes, They're trying to encourage reporters to massage reporters to write the kind of stories that make their clients look better. Mm -hmm. And as a reporter, I've spent decades seriously juggling what people tell me versus the truth. You know, I always say there are three sides to every story, mm -hmm. yours, mine, and the truth. Mm -hmm. And as a reporter, I'm in search of that truth. And as a journalist, um, I have I have focused my life on that truth. And as an and, and as a crime fiction author, that's what I wanted to reveal in One Wrong Word, how much of our lives, how much of the input that we hear from media 
um, is a result of those of that spin and persuasion and the power of words. I mean, words are, I mean, words are the most dangerous weapon almost there can be. I mean, they're not like a gun or a knife, but just as destructive, certainly. And we all have the power of words and we all, so we, we all possess kind of this deadly weapon, don't we, mm -hmm. of words. And we all have the choice of whether to use them for good or evil. And that's the same with the crisis management people that you're asking me about is I've learned over the years to say, who benefits from this? What's your real motivation right. in telling me this? Why should I believe you? And what do you get from this? And so that juggle is what I was trying to reveal. So I'm looking at, I'm looking at Arden Ward. I'm looking at being a reporter from the other side. And that's how I did my research for Arden Ward because I know what they do. I've listened to them for years. Well, you know, it's interesting today because besides people having publicists, stylists, and other support team, crisis managers is also often called in because people made a mistake and how are we going to undo it and what's going on? Did you always know that you were going to have Arden be somebody in crisis management? Did you think of her being a publicist or something else along the way? Or was it always, this is what she's going to do? She's a fixer. Well, from the standpoint of a good novel, from the standpoint of a page-turning, propulsive, riveting, compelling thriller, which is what I wanted to write, you need conflict. You need something bad to have happened. You need the stakes to be extremely high. And so I, I thought, you know, not to make her a lawyer, not to make her a detective, not to make her a journalist, but to make her have a, a job where every single day she deals with a crisis. Every, mm -hmm. I mean, she in the book, remember, she calls her, she likens herself to a nurse who's healing someone's reputation with her skills at, at social media and at talking and at being interviewed and just sort of shepherding people in how to think. So I thought it was a cool idea, frankly, to have her to be in this constant state of high stakes, constant state of trying to help someone's life be better. She's good, right? Arden is really good. She's She uses her skills for good. Um, and I, I think that works. I mean, it's interesting. I have a wonderful endorsement from David Baldacci, which is one of the first uh, blurbs that I got, endorsements that I got. And when he sent me the blurb in the email, in the email, he also said, I can't wait to read the next Arden Ward story. You know, she's such a, she's such a good character. And that had never crossed my mind until David Baldacci, you know, really, and, and I'm so grateful to for his amazingly kind words. He's a, a, such a rock star. Right. Um, thought she was, you know, wise enough, smart enough, powerful enough, savvy enough knowledgeable enough to to carry a series so it is interesting there's a lot of love for Arden Ward which um I'm thrilled about well I have to tell you that's one of my questions for later on is uh, is she a series character because I felt the same way I really felt the same way about her I thought that she's the kind and it's the kind of character we don't have in a book right now we have female investigators we have police procedurals we have all these other things but this is a very different type of job. And I also felt that you had fully fleshed out her character. And at the end, she's talking about, and I'm not going to give things away, the people she wants to work with and what she wants to do. She's seeing in her head. So I'm feeling the same way as, oh, I love that. I thought the same way as David Baldacci, folks. But I thought the same thing. I said, I think you got such a great setup of a really terrific character. And Crisis management can take you in so many different directions right now. And, you know, and we are such, because of social media, because of everything that's going on, like, okay, let's go back to the Grammys just for one second. I'm sitting there watching, why is Beyonce wearing a cowboy hat? Like, honestly, why is this woman wearing something that if I was in Denver walking the streets with that hat on, people would think I was an idiot, okay? Why is she doing this? And a couple of days later at the Super Bowl, it announced that she's doing a country album. So you sit there now and go, oh, that's why she was. And that's why nobody commented on that that night. Like, was I the only person sitting? So I think that when you think about all the influences that are out there right now, but if something goes awry, like what her husband said on stage about her never having been a, a, a winner before. Well, now is she trying to win best country album of the year? Your mind immediately starts working. So it's not just crisis management. What we're looking at right now is how we're being manipulated all day. All and day. sometimes you need that crisis person to say, this didn't go well. 
how are we going to fix it? And we need to fix it now. I mean, you it's know? so it's so interesting because when we were little kids, if something happened to us, you know, we'd run to our parents if we were lucky and say, what do I say? What do I do? And they'd say, you go in there, you march right in there and you tell them this or just ignore it. You know, they're just teasing you. It's all don't don't worry about it. And now as adults, you know, when adults make mistakes or when adults need advice, you know, it's sort of a therapist for your reputation. Right. Is- Arden does and sort of, you know, quiets the naysayers and encourages the, the, pos- the you know, the, the positive reactions and sort of recreates reality a little bit, recreates people's reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes you see how, you know, what is truth? I mean, I don't need, need to be woo-woo about this, but there's emotional truth and legal truth and moral truth and ethical truth and sort of romantic truth and relationship truth. I mean, all those kinds of things. And is truth, you know, what we wish for? Is truth right. what we want to believe? Is truth what someone tells us over and over and over and over and over and tries to make us believe there is a truth, there is a truth. And it's this shades of the truth that you're talking about mm-hmm. um, that we really, that I that I think we really need to be on the lookout for. And again, this is what Arden Ward, and you can see in her thought process as she's trying to figure out, you know, when people are taking, pretending to take a selfie when they're really taking a picture of her client. Yes. How, you know, this is what people, this is how people manipulate the world. And she is just, she's his uh, protector in this she's his protector but should what if he's really a bad guy what Mm -hmm. if she's made what if she's been lured into doing something that she shouldn't be doing then what does she do where is her allegiance at that point and that kind of personal crisis that she has to face you know it's her it's her life and her job and her reputation and her career sort of you know it's her 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 health insurance you know versus her honor you know what do you do? What do you do? Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm actually thinking about that where he's out with her and she's watching what he's doing. And she says, you realize those people over there are taking a picture of you. You realize what's going on. And he is completely oblivious. And she goes, do you realize with what you're doing right now, you're playing into exactly what they said you did. And they're all taking pictures of you. And he's completely oblivious. And she's just sitting back in the chair and watching what's going on. And I remember I was watching a show the other night and they go like, everybody was doing like this and the character's not even realizing what's going on. And that is what the other person sees. The other person sees the bigger problem, you know? I love that. It's because she's trained to see the big picture and because she understands how manipulative, how manipulative people can be, how they can manipulate reality and how you know, with the click of a mouse or the, you know, the click of a phone, you get a photo or you overhear something and, you know, it spreads, you know, the, the, the speed with which a lie spreads is astonishing, mm-hmm. especially now. And, you know, my, this book is sort of suits meets scandal, you know, yes, it's, yes. And don't you think? And it's yes. also about how eager we all are to hear the latest buzz about the thing, you know, I mm-hmm. said, you know, did you hear about the thing? And you're like, yeah, you know, can, can you, this is what I heard about it. And that spreads and that takes over our lives. It takes right. over our lives again. And that's where Arden Ward comes in in one wrong word. She's trying to regulate that, tamp that down, keep that reined in, make it work for her. Yeah. And it's like, okay, this is like not what we're going to do. But then we've got this court character of Cordelia. And Cordelia is just, oh, I have been so injured by what he has done. I have done nothing and I am just being scandalized. And I love it when she comes to see Arden. It's just like, oh, my darling, this is what you need to fix for me. These are all the things you need to do. And you're just like, okay, this is like your trauma of what's going on. I'm like my child wasn't invited to this party. And I thought that now that he's not guilty, he will be. And this is what this woman is obsessed with is the askance look in the club, the askance look of what's going on. When someone's social status is their entire life, um, that can skew your vision of reality a little Mm -hmm. bit. And that's what Cordelia is used to. And she really thought, as I was saying, she really thought when they got an acquittal that everything would be taken care of. People would say, oh, all right, I'm so sorry. You know, your husband isn't a drunk driver. Um, but that's not what they said at all. And she she feels uh, the unfairness of the public's reaction 
to what should have made everything be okay. I mean, mm -hmm. when, you're, when you're the spouse of a person on trial um, and you're deciding whether to stand by them or whether to believe them, and how do you deal with that? How does Cordelia deal with the possibility that her bigwig mogul husband might be sent to prison for 15 years and, and leave her with the kids? I mean, it's sad enough, but when someone has is used to a certain lifestyle, it's going to pull the rug out from under their lives as well. And that's what she's afraid of. She's afraid of, you know, what happens after this verdict, what's going to happen to her because her life is on trial. Her life is being judged and her kids' lives are being judged. You know, they're not being invited to, I mean, they don't understand that they're young. Pip and Emma are young and they don't understand why suddenly they're not getting invited to birthday parties or they're not on the soccer team or people ignore them in middle school that's hard and 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 that's and that's what Arden is there to help for, to to get them their lives back why are they victims of what their father or husband did that's right. not that's not fair either and it just grows much bigger it always goes much bigger of like you know where the other tentacles are going to go out to like ruin your life now I also to tell says, you I mean, uh, she Arden says um to, to Ned how many people have come into your real estate office recently? How many people, how many How many new clients do you have? Do you think people are going to be really happy to sit down with you or say, Ned Bannister, you know, is, is my real estate agent? They're not, they don't want you. And he says, oh, no, it'll be fine. And she says, you know, no, it's not going to be fine. It's not going to be fine. It's not going to be good. It's not going to go well. And I'm, I have to tell you also, I love the name Arden. And if I had a daughter... Her name was going to be Arden Alexandra. I mean, it was absolutely going to be Arden. It was kind of funny because I don't where we were living on a street called Arden Court at the time, but that did not the reason. I just thought it was a beautiful name. And then you've got these fabulous character names, Monel, and I guess it's Naomi. Uh -huh. And sometimes, like, I really love how you come up with character names. And I know sometimes you reach out to your readers for them. But tell me, because it's so much is in a name as well. Like Arden, I felt like she's being ardent about what she was doing at the same time. But it's always one of those names. And when I picked up the book, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is like exactly the name I've always thought was beautiful. And it said something about the person as well. So am I crazy saying this when you're naming characters? No, you're so completely right. It is such alchemy to name a character. Some characters arrive just named. Monel Churchwood, the 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 gosh, how would you describe her? Determined, obsessed, devoted district attorney who just wants to put Ned Bannister in prison. Yes. Monel Churchwood, that was her name. The minute I mean, I didn't I I honestly, Carol, I didn't think of it. She just was. Monel Churchwood. That's just who she was. Her name never changed. I can show you. Let's see if I have this right here. Um, here's this. Here's the list of character names. Wow. Um, that I wow. started. I started writing the character names and I, all the women's names that began with A. And you see that Arden um, is finally circled with a star. And I just kept writing them until I found one that worked. And when I, I mean, I was a Shakespeare major in college. So you see Arden and Cordelia and throughout, you know, those kinds of things. And it's not even conscious, you know, it's just what burbles up to the top. Um, there, you know, in my book, The Murder List, one of the main characters um, was initially named Gianna Delaney. And I thought, oh, that's a nice name, Gianna Delaney. And Gianna Delaney wouldn't do anything she just was a lump. She was like, you know, old spaghetti. She was just a lump. And I thought I was really having trouble writing her role, big main character in The Murderlist. And finally, I thought, well, I don't know. Maybe this isn't her name. You know, maybe, I, maybe I've gotten the name wrong. I changed her name to Rachel North. And she just sat up and she's like, watch me, sister. She had attitude. You know, she had motivation. Uh, she had a voice. And it was just because I changed the name. So any author will tell you that. I mean, I was talking to Joe Finder about this last night, that how names evolve sometimes is just magic. Sometimes mm -hmm. they appear. I mean, I have gone through. I don't know if you have this in New York, but in Massachusetts, we have the, the state treasurer's list of people who are owed money from the treasury oh, office. Yes, yes, like yes. A compendium of a million names. Yes. At one point, I started going through the names of people who are, have missing money that they can claim. And not one name worked. I just, I mean, think of how many pages. It just didn't work. And you're right. Sometimes I do auction off character names. Yes, yes. Uh, in charity auctions. And so there are some charity names 
uh, in this book, but I won't tell you what they are. It's just, it takes away the magic to know that it's it's a real person. But it's not Monell is not a, is not an auction name, and Cordelia Bannister or Ned or Arden Ward are not auction names. But I'll give you that clue. But it, it's, it's a couple cool. of other people, a couple of other people, and that's fun too because. I don't know what's going to come next in my novels until I write the next sentence or the next yeah. paragraph or the next scene. I don't know. So when I put a when I put an auction name in, I don't know whether they're going to turn out to be a good guy or a bad guy. I, yeah. I don't know. And there was one book I wrote where I finally, when I was in the final draft, I finally had to email one of the auction names and say, you know, I'm so sorry. I thought you were going to be a good person, but it didn't turn out that way. So <laughs> you want me to change your name and make you be not be the bad guy? And she said, no, it's fine. I'll be the bad guy. Uh, so I don't ever, I don't ever make a, an auction name be the victim. Okay. Even though I've had people ask me to do that. And I say, you know, you think it's funny now, but it isn't when you read that you died, it's mm -mm. pretty creepy. I'm I'm and I'm not going to do it. So that's the line, that's the boundary that I draw. Well, and what's Monel's last name again? Is it Church? Churchwood. Churchwood. And, and it made me think because she's trying for justice. She's trying for like what would be um right. And when I saw her name Churchwood, I, like I was seeing that at the same time. So yeah, you got me. You got me. Now, some of the chapters have titles and others do not, especially I noticed in part three. And a lot of times they're character names at the very top. So do readers do a deep dive into the characters here or what made that shift happen in that section of the book? Unless I missed it in other parts, I really saw it in part three. Yes. Um, my holy grail in a novel is clarity. I want you to know exactly whose point of view you're in and whose story you're hearing um, at every moment. So it starts out with um, with Arden and you have the point of view of Arden. And every time the point of view changes, I marked that now we're hearing from Monell. Mm -hmm. Now we're hearing for Cordelia from Cordelia. And I let it stay with that point of view until it changed again. I just want to make sure you absolutely are, don't have to think now who's talking here right. or where, where am I uh, um, when I'm, I'm very um, aware as I'm writing my novels of clarity for the printed book and also clarity for the audiobook. Yes. I think about my audiobooks are so important and I adore my audiobook. Gail Shalon is just a marvelous uh, narrator, reader, actor um, from Macmillan Audio and she did a, a terrific job. And I, I want to make sure that when you're reading, listening to the audiobook, that you're absolutely grounded in place and character. Right. Because in a book book, in a physical book, the reader can go back and say, you know, who where who is that? Where am right. I? But in an audiobook book, it's so inexorably forward that every chapter I want to make sure you know who's talking and where they are. So you don't ever have to worry about um, understanding it. Yeah. And I think it's really important. You're right with the audio, especially if it's in two different time periods, mm -hmm. like which period are we in right now? What are, what is happening? But it is, it's Monell is going to be speaking very, very differently than Arden is going to be speaking. She might be a little bit tougher when they're up and they go someplace. I'm not going to tell everybody where they go. They go someplace. Things have to change there too. There's a new character that's introduced there. There are the children are having voices there that they didn't have before. So you've got to sit there and say, well, how am I constructing them? Are they fearful? Are they this? Are they that? And, you know, that's where you go from there. Then there's this other thing, because there's actually like a character that's <laughs> a perfume and it's joy perfume. And it's associated with the reason Arden's in trouble right from the beginning. And it comes up again. And tell me why that fragrance, like what made you, is it timeless? Is that why you did it? Or tell me. I wish there, I wish I could say, oh, I had a plan. I, this was my plan. I planned this. But when, um, I'm trying to figure out how much I can say. The, the perfume joy, which comes up very early in the story and is very pivotal in the story. And you'll have to read it to find out, you all. But um, the perfume is classic and there's always going to be joy perfume. 
Um, it's also soft. It's also sort of, as, as Arden says, sort of an OG fragrance. Arden's mother used it. And so it has uh, nostalgia and love and, you know, connections for Arden, that fragrance, how powerful fragrances are in our lives. And we will get this through the book. So I wanted it to be a classic fragrance that would be knowable to every age or to every generation. Um, and I wanted it to be something that was recognizable, that yeah. if you've ever smelled Joy or, you know, if you smelled Shalimar, if you, you know, if you smell Chanel number no. five, you know what that smells like. We we know what that, we know what that smells like. Youth do. We know what, and we know what that means, you know, right? We know who's going to, who's probably going to be wearing that. Yeah, yeah. And so that the, the, the you know, the scent of the fragrance of perfume um, was very important in the book. And also that the name it means something else. I mean, yes. every, everything is careful, careful in my novels to have a several, several at least layers of meaning. Nothing is just what it says on the, what it says on the surface. So joy is also something else in yeah. the book as well. Yeah, I really love that. I also, the fragrance reminded me of trying to run through the entrance of a department store's beauty <laughs> section and not get sprayed. Yeah, I mean, remember I that. I think the best thing about like COVID was you didn't go to the department store anymore and get sprayed because I would run over when I was working at Condé Nast, I'd run to Saks at lunchtime and it'd be like, no, 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 no. Would you like the fragrance strip? And I always felt sorry for those people that what's your job is to spritz people as they walk through the store. And I was like, and who wants that? Who's the likely spritz candidate? Like, who's the person that's going to say, oh, yeah, do me, you know? No. Because what if you don't like it? It's horrible. And I think that's why they changed to the fragrance strips, right? They just squirt it <laughs> on the strip and then you put it in your purse and forget about well, it. We used to have it, the strips in the magazine. So you oh, actually would have these smelly strips. And then people used to say, I don't want to be, ads didn't want to be next to the smelly strips. It was, it's all the stuff that used to happen that's not, you know, quite the same thing anymore. My secret was I would get a magazine and I would, the first thing I would do would take out those fragrance okay. things and yeah. throw them because you, uh, this is such a funny conversation, it's, but, I, it's, it's a, but it's a funny conversation because it's what, okay. What I'm saying is next is what you, I love about your work is the details and the detail of the joy perfume, the detail of what goes on. And are, were they there for the start or do you like write and then see the room? And then say how I'm going to decorate it or like you're just banging out and going and there's a fragrance and there's a this or that. Or are you as you're writing because your details are so good putting them in now or leaving space fragrance to come. <laughs> no, I would never do fragrance to come. It, I don't I, I have to have that before I go forward. I think that, you know, maybe the way of I'm sort of thinking out loud here. The way it is, is I sort of see the movie in my mind okay. and hear the movie in my mind of who's in the room and how are they being and the rattle of ice in a glass. And if someone has someone has a glass and they put it down, where does where are they putting it? Are they careful about a coaster? Do they put it on a magazine? What magazine might they put it on? What is the mm. table? You see, it, it, because of who they are and because of where they are, I mean, I, in, in, you know, in one of my books, I had someone, um, she's eating a cookie and she's, and she just scrapes the, the crumbs, the cookie crumbs from the table onto the floor. And that's, you know, you, if you saw that, you would say, don't do that. You know, yeah. that's careless. You know, you're, that's a very self-centered person. And by that one gesture, I don't need to say that she's careless um, or self-centered. I just have her brush the crumbs on somebody else's floor and there you have who she is. So I use all those things to reveal character, mm -hmm. to reveal setting, and you get the the viewer, the reader, I hope gets the puzzle pieces of, mm -hmm. of the setting and how the people are using the setting. You know, everything means, everything means something. Mm -hmm. um, it's so much fun to make that movie become reality on the page. And it's like the food they eat, the way they move. There was a moment, the other night I was watching the Capote, the feud, the Capote uh -huh. show. And I actually was thinking at one point when um, the characters are walking around of your book, I mean, honestly, because everybody was so purposeful. Like she took her hair and sprayed it. And the way she was having her, um, the help put on her necklace and put on her earrings. And then 
where that translated later on, she was actually going to like radiation and she takes those things off. And this whole construct, and I feel like you do the same thing. Constructing the outfit was one thing. And then she went to this other place and she completely unconstructed that outfit. And just doing that was such a big deal. And I think that, I feel you do that same thing in your book is like you're walking through and a scene has been constructed. There's a scene where they're someplace else. I'm not going to tell you where. And you get noticing about these people and what the people are revealing that they might not have revealed in a different place. And just by you moving them, you get the action that you're going to need. Thank you. This is so nice of you. <laughs> I'm just sitting here listening. I love it. I love it. It's such a, you're such a careful reader. You know, we, I sit at this very desk for a year and mm -hmm. create this world. And to me, it's it's real and I can envision it and the people are moving through it with intention and motivation and desire and passion. Everybody wants something mm -hmm. and how far will they go to get it? And what's their milieu and where do they live? I mean, Arden's brownstone on Beacon Hill, which I can imagine um, so easily as if I actually knew it. You know, mm -hmm. it's really real to me with the spiral staircase and the way the uh, fireplaces are in her fish tank and mm -hmm. um, the room that used to have a ballet, obviously had a ballet bar in it and, and mirrors. I mean, who knows who lived there before? Um, and when Ned drives in to see her brownstone, what's Ned? Ned is a real estate guy. Right. So she said, oh, does it come with parking? And she says, you know, and, and she says to him, what, are we going to Zillow next? And, ne and Ned says, I'm the one who tells Zillow what to put. And again, so now we get where she is, what she thinks, what he thinks, their banter and their relationship and the setting and all that, all that is really fun to write. And at the same time, there's then this balance of power yes. because all of a sudden he's got the power to say, oh, I think this is worth this, you know, da, da, da. And he's showing her, I have control. Yes. Like I have a control kind of thing. So you do it. Like what I'm saying is every one of those little details, and it does come across because it makes the story more authentic because mm -hmm. you're seeing the characters in a 360 kind of a way, the way you're bringing them into the room. So then you've got this brilliant twist at the end. And we've talked in the past about how you write your story stream of consciousness. There is, there is no like outline in, you know, in the life of Hank, the life yeah. of Hank has no outline. That's true. That is totally true. No true. So did you see this, like you sitting down and then you see this ending and you go, that's where I'm going. Or did you see the ending a little bit sooner? I have a setup going to it now. I love this. No, it's a surprise. I mean, I, it, I know it sounds unlikely. I, the only thing I really know, and this has sort of come to me, you know, I just sent in book 16. So this has sort of come to me recently is that I kind of know, sort of hard to describe, but I kind of know the last frame of video in the, in the book. Like if, if you were watching a movie, what would be the lasting, the last and lasting moment that I leave with readers? What is the, you know, um, I don't know how to I get there, but I know who I want to be there. Right, right, right. Uh, and how I want the main character or characters um, to feel and how I want the reader to feel. I mean, in, in, in one wrong word, I want you to feel like, yeah, this is exactly <laughs> what should have happened. Uh -huh. um, and also and also like sort of, oh, you know, this sort of emotional coda at the end of the book where the themes are sort of reiterated and you're the, the the reader is sort of gently prodded to say remember what this is about now you know mm -hmm. it's about it up. yeah yeah and that and so that's very that's very important to me at the end of the book you know I I kind of there are two ways I know I'm finished with my novels well three one is there's a deadline and my editor says you're done <laughs> but the other two ways you know some I, I'm I'm so um in love with the editing process I think the editing process is where the book that's the ball game is the mm -hmm. editing process you know I I write the first chapter I write the first draft to find out what the story is you know I'm in search of the story and at the end of the first draft I think okay got this I know what this is now and then I go back and make it be that more you know I take out everything that isn't the story and deepen and enrich and layer everything that is the story um, and I edit and edit and edit and edit and edit and when I'm editing there's always a point where 
I forgot, I forget that I wrote it. I'm just reading it to wow. find out what happens next. Wow. I think, and it always happens. And I think, oh, wait, I know what happens. I wrote this, you know, I, but <laughs> it's I'm just- my so, book. It's my book, yeah, folks. But I'm so into the story that I forget I'm editing. So that's one way I know I'm finished. And the other way I know I'm finished, which I hope is sort of analogous to how readers feel when they're finished, is it kind of brings tears to my eyes. You know, okay. I get to the end and I think, oh, yeah, that's good. You know, that's what should have happened. Not that the book is good, but that, yeah, that's what should have happened. That's exactly yeah. what should have happened. That's right. And I really work on the endings to try to give readers that feeling of completion and satisfaction that it was a fair story where all the clues were, were real and the red herrings were explained and every and everybody, you know, all the loose ends are tied up with a nice red bow at the end. So everything is finished, you know, so you feel when you close the book, you say, yeah, that's, that's exactly what should have happened. She nailed it. She completely nailed it. You know, I always tell people that you read the last chapter first when you read a book. We've had this conversation more than once. Yeah. So do you think about this when you write your own last chapters of maybe I can't put the real, the end at the end. I've got to put it up a few pages because of what I know I do. Yes. I mean, and I think very seriously, I think um, if you read the last page of my book, or the last chapter of my book, you wouldn't know, right? You wouldn't know the end of the plot. You wouldn't right, right. know there's there's the plot line and then there's the personal line. So if you you might you might it might ruin the story a little bit if you read the second to the last chapter, but right. it's not going to ruin the story if you read the very last chapter. And it, but it'll be I always say, please don't do this, you all. Please don't read the last chapter of 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 my book or actually anybody's book, please don't do that. I do it for me because it's educational for me. Okay. You know, if okay. I, as an author, if I read the last chapter first and then I go back to the beginning and read it from the beginning, I can deconstruct the author's story thought mm -hmm. process. Mm -hmm. I'm really mm -hmm. studying the book to see how they got to the end. So I, you know, I've never cared about that. I know the ending of a, of a novel or a movie. I often say, just tell me the end, just tell me, it. I don't care. It's fun for me to watch it unfold, to see what the author has done as a reader. Who's not an author. I say, please don't do that. You know, the author has worked so hard. Just read it from the beginning. Just read it through. But I'm talking just sort of educationally for me. If there's a book that I think is going to be great, I might read the end first and then start at the beginning to, to deconstruct the pathway that the author took to get there. But I do not encourage it. I do, I, I discourage it. Let me put it that way. I totally discourage it. Well, the other thing is you're a very, very generous author. You host more than one show, the co-host of Founder of the Back Room, host of Crime Time, A Mighty Blaze, and the co-host of First Chapter Fun. And I know these interviews require a lot of time. You're reading the books, you're trying, I mean, while you're writing your own work and selecting guests, prep the actual show, getting it up there. How with you, everything you've got going on, do you have time in your schedule for this? Because I see your dates of what you're doing. And I was like, oh my gosh, on top of all else. And on top of this big tour that you're on at the same time. The tour is the tour is, is really funny and fun. And you know, I you know, book tours are not that glamorous. I'm so happy to be doing this and I'm so yeah. uh, incredibly delighted at all the people that I'm meeting and all the you know, it's just fun in every way. But we're talking, I'm not live on Subway sandwiches, let me just say. You know, mm -hmm. you buy you buy a Subway sandwich, you eat half of it, you stash the rest away for when you're gonna be starving later. And you know, I always have emergency almonds with me because you never know when you're gonna be starving. So it's great and it's fun and I absolutely love it. As for juggling the rest of the stuff, you know, my husband and I um, are great pals and re we respect each other's work. Jonathan is a criminal defense and civil mm -hmm. rights attorney and he has, you know, he works on big cases and he, you know, he's very focused. So we're a good match. You know, we don't have any pets. Um, we don't have any, pl any green plants that live, you know, they just <laughs> die. Um, and so we both, you know, we both really enjoy our lives together and we both really work hard. And so, you know, he may be working late into the night on a murder case and I may be working late into the night on a fictional murder case. And it's, it's, there's no, there's no difficulty 
mm-hmm. about it. we, we mm-hmm. encourage each other you know that you know why I have stepkids he has wonderful uh, daughter and son and daughter and we have grandchildren but they don't live in town and so it's just really my life is my work right, um, right. We're both happy with that. It's I'm just so lucky, Carol. I'm just so lucky that knock on wood, it's worked out this way, this sort of second half of my life and career. I didn't start writing till I was 55. I know. You know, I'm on book 16. And that's that's amazing. Well, you know, it's it's funny because my husband has a very different career for me, very, very busy. Like I see him in the morning. We have, our offices are at different ends of the house. Like we really like say he'll yell up at he'll come up at like, you know, 555 and say, what do you want for dinner? Because he cooks during the week. But it's really interesting because I've never been told by him, like, what don't work this weekend? I've never heard that. There were years I traveled all the time. I don't do it anymore because it just takes too much. It takes yeah. too much away. We're just way too busy at the office now. But in fact, somebody said to me, do you want to go to Savannah Book Festival this weekend? And I said, um, yeah, I always think that's a really good idea till Martin Luther King weekend. And then I realized I have no time to go do this and I'm going to get snowed out or something's yeah. going to be a disaster. But, you know, that mutual respect and allowing you the time that you don't feel that you're asking for free time. And you can actually like he said to me this weekend, what do you want to do? There's three days. I said, uh, sit on the couch with a book in the fireplace. Like. <laughs> That's multitasking to me. That's really good. Doing nothing is great. Doing nothing by watching television and reading a book and probably catching up on emails a little bit and planning dinner and maybe folding the laundry at the same time. Exactly. Exactly. Last night we we went out to dinner with friends and I was like, oh my gosh, I've got so much to do. I've got all these things to do. It's kind of nice to take that little bit of a break. But man, when I came back home, I was like, okay, you do kitchen, I do laundry. You know, like we've got to get something done around here. Um, so you went on this big, you're on this big tour and you know, it's really interesting because you start the tour and a lot of people haven't read the book yet. So, and now you've got like 20 more dates set up and you may now have people who have read the book. Uh So they're showing up in the store. Does the vibe change and what you end up talking about from the beginning of a tour to an end, or you're pretty much on the same, the same game? It's a great question. I, it's pretty much the same people who, even people who have read the book, ask sort of the same process questions, which I love talking about. How does your mind work? How does your writer brain work? How do you, you know, all those wonderful things that we all love to talk about. Um, And those are the kinds of questions that I get. So I get a lot of questions about, you know, whether I've been stalked or threatened or, you know, done something dangerous in my career as a, as a reporter. And those are, those are fun questions to ask us to answer as well. So I, I, you know, from, yes, I mean, that's very prescient of you because, as the tour goes on and people have read the book, then I'll get more specific questions about the book. And then we always have to do the juggle of, you know, how much do you answer this for people who have not read the book at all? Yeah. I'll answer it on the signing line. Yes. And it's also hard because a lot of times stores want you to buy the book and people have already bought the book and it becomes this whole, it's like, there's this juggle of pre-order, come and buy the book and go do these. And I find that interesting. So let's talk about the title. We're talking about one wrong word. Was this always the title? You know, it was the title before I knew what the book was. <laughs> I love I, it. I love yes, it. And, and the murderless too. I had the title before I had the book, but I can tell you exactly where this came from. In my book, The House Guest, my previous book, The House Guest, mm-hmm. as I was writing The House Guest, one of the characters in The House Guest, again, a fictional character in The House Guest, says to someone, well, you know, one wrong word is like a guillotine. It can just kill you. And I, at that moment in writing the book, I thought, oh, yeah, that's a good title. One wrong word. That's a good title. So my the book title came from a fictional character who I had saying in a fictional conversation who then gave me the idea for the title for a book that I didn't know what was. Let me see if I can do what your readers have been doing. Wait a second. They have to do a little bit over to your, yeah, split your nose in half. I'm going to try to do. Wait, we got to put my nose this way. Yeah, there you go. Oh, stop. There we go. There we go. She's had this screenshot. She has had so many readers doing this and it's so much fun to see of like, you know, what people are doing. Isn't it disturbing? Because it really works for Bill Martin did it last night at a book signing for me. And it was I know. it's like, just come down like this and you're there. Oh my gosh, it's so much fun. And now people are not only Bill Martin, but people are doing their dogs, the dog, the dog. <laughs> I think my lipstick matches. I'm kind of happy about that. You know, the fashion part of me. There we go. So you love the narrator of the audio. So wait, let's let's do something. So this cover, 
was this always the cover? Did you, because it's so perfect for doing our little exercise over here, but was this it? Um, we went through, I mean, Forge's art department is brilliant. brilliant Kate Klimowitz yeah. is brilliant. She's a genius. And I had said that I wanted part of a face that mm -hmm. could be the other part of the face to have them feel like part of the book. Right. But we, it got down to, you know, Hank, this is like the last three. We're going to press. We're going to press. <laughs> That's it. When I saw, but when I saw her, I said, that is it. That is it. Yeah. That is completely it. That is com that is completely right. It's just like a character name. You know, when it's right, you totally know it's right. Um, and everybody has loved this cover. I, and yeah, I, and I, I feel like this is Arden. I mean, I really feel like this is, and you know, sometimes they say, oh, don't show the character because it doesn't matter because you've only seen part of her and it completely works. Completely. It completely works for the game everybody's been playing. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've had book covers in other people's lives where I've said about other people who have said, and I've said, who, who is that? Who is that supposed to be on the cover? And they're like, I don't know. You know, ah, it's almost like a person. You know, da, 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 da. It's Arden and it, it doesn't hurt that you see that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, okay. I love the character of Arden. Any chance we're going to see her again? I mean, David Baldacci now said it and me. Any chance? You know, I, I, I am in love with the fact that you thought it too. I mean, I just think if I have David Baldacci and you, that is such a power team. <laughs> how can I say no? I will tell you the, I will tell you that I, it, it never crossed my mind. It, right. it has never crossed my mind. And now that David and you have brought it up and some, and many readers as well, I admit that my brain is wondering, wondering about that and I I sort of trust the book idea process I you know when I get a good idea I only need one you know I only need one good idea for a book, for right. a book. and the idea will come and if it's meant to be if Arden is meant to be back um mm -hmm. then we'll then we'll see what happens I mean I just finished my next book which is not which is not an Arden story of course yeah and that's already in editing right now and it'll come out next June so I'm pretty happy about that oh, so you're moving to June next year so it'll be the June okay. uh, well that's what they say you know this it's what month is this now February or February um I, I you know who knows it's only it'll be a surprise no it, it's just and and I also respect that you hit deadlines you hit everything I never hear um Hank's behind I never hear that it's like you and it's a journalistic you got to get it in. Like, that's it. It's got to go. It's, you know, it's me with the newsletter on Fridays. I'll turn to my editorial director and I said, I've got nothing. I've really got nothing. I have no idea how to start this this week. And he goes, you'll come up with it. And I go, I really have nothing. And then all of a sudden, I don't know, I'll see a flower or I'll see something. And, or you talk about something you did during the week and it'll like, Okay, there, but there are other times, I mean, I keep notes all week. So like you're writing and you may have notes scattered someplace. I have notes of where I want to go because I may watch something during the week that will inspire me to say something, but I'm never going to remember it. It's not going to happen. Not going to happen. That's the, you know, that's the magic of writing, whether it's a newsletter or whether it's a novel. You know, when you trust that the process like that and you just do it. I mean, I was reading something that said, the muse only comes when you're working. Yeah. You know, yeah. and so when your brain will offer you the thing when it's time for the thing. Yeah. And I, you know, I really like your newsletters as well because they have a voice, a tone, and an attitude to them. And it is not just go by, there's a story in there, there's something that comes in. And I think that we are so obsessed with um, pre order, sale, this, this, this. And we sometimes forget, like, it's not the week for somebody to do something, but they're going to do it. It's just not going to happen either. But if you've got that relationship with the reader, it's a different kind of a setup. It's a different kind of setup. And they're coming out to see you because you've not just sold them a book during the year. You've talked to them during the year, you know? Well, what's more important than the readers? I mean, there is just nothing. I am nothing without the readers. And I, you know, genuinely authentically I'm touched by the communication and the friendship and the enthusiasm and the support. And, you know, this is, I mean, the idea that I can connect with those people, um, I just love, I mean, it brings tears to my eyes. Yeah. And, you know, you think about it years ago, when you first started, there was none of this, you were not doing social media, you're not doing, and think about the ways you can communicate now. And, you know, when we do our events, a lot of times 
we're connecting with people like we did our Bocchino live the other day with people in like 27 states like very few others are going to Idaho I mean I'm sorry it's a great state but not a lot of people are going there on tour but to be able to expose people these are the books that are coming out and the feedback you get because people say like oh I didn't even know that was coming and I'm like there you go there That's you go well, I can't wait to see the next one. Do we have a title yet? Or are we still playing around with that? Oh, no, I have a title. I'll, I'll tell you it. I'll tell you it. I'd love to know what you think. Um, it's called All This Could Be Yours. Ooh. All This Could Be Yours. All This Could Be Yours. <laughs> all I'll tell you, it's it's about, um, and it's especially funny because I'm on book tour now, just complete grueling book tour. Mm. And it's about um, a debut author okay. with a surprise bestseller who gets sent on a nationwide grueling book tour <laughs> only to discover that she has a stalker who is out to ruin her career and destroy the family she's left back home because of a Faustian bargain she didn't realize she had made. And that Ooh. is all this could be yours. Ooh, that is great. That's great. And you have enough ideas about book tour. I saw somebody the other day, they said, I only carry one suitcase. I am the world's worst traveler. When we used to go to things like Baoshikan out of town, okay, this is the things I would pack. Um, the kickboard, the flippers, the bathing suit, the goggles. That was like a, like a suitcase of like toys. Like I was five going on these trips. And then it would be the 14 possible changes of outfit of what could happen. And everybody goes, well, no, I'm just going with a carry-on. And I'm like, a carry-on? Did you ship everything ahead? I just go with the carry-on. I'm going to be out on the road for 20 days. And if it doesn't fit in that carry-on, it's not going. Um, because I, I don't want to lose my luggage. I don't want to carry things around. No, It's fine. It'll, it's it'll, tough enough now. It's tough enough to make sure you get to the city on time, let alone without the bag, you know? Yeah. So I have a wonderful suitcase, which I love. And, and, and very uh, gallant people on the airplane helped me put it up because it's really heavy, but that's how it goes. That's just, how. Everything's in it. Everything's in it, including the almonds, just in case of emergency. And I've had those, the kind bars. That's usually what I throw in all the kind bars. And then I was wicked at going to the United Lounge and just taking food. Like the, 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 the Lounge has to go, here's some carrots for later. And they used to have these little crackers with the cheese. Oh man, those were wicked. I mean, three days later, they were still, you know, it was still uh, fossilized enough that you could eat it. So now when you're on book tour, you eat anything. Absolutely anything. anything. How bad is that bagel? You know, like how bad can it be? It's fine. Fine. It's fine. It's all not going to count anyway. Hank, yeah. it's always a pleasure. It is such so much fun to connect with you. And especially after connecting with the book so much. And okay, if we see Arden back, everybody, just remember, I was saying I want to see Arden again. <laughs> you were saying, absolutely. I will give you total credit for that. Thank you so much for joining us as always. Oh my goodness, my pleasure. You are fabulous. Thank you. And then next time we'll do it again. Keep listening for an audio excerpt from One Wrong Word by Hank Philippi Ryan, narrated by Gail Shalin, coming up after the credits, courtesy of Macmillan Audio. The show has been produced by Jordan Red Productions. And now, hear an audiobook excerpt from One Wrong Word, narrated by Gail Shalin, courtesy of Macmillan Audio. Regret has consumed him, and fear too. And Cordelia wishes she could let her husband know how well she understands his spiraling terror. She's never seen him cry, not like he is now. Anguished, head on his knees, taking up all the space on the folding chair in the waiting area off the courtroom. A metal-tipped cord attached to the grimy, woven curtains keeps tapping against the window. Tap, 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 aggravated by the rattle of the ancient heater. How much sorrow this room has seen, this limbo between guilty and not guilty. Some who sit here, waiting, will go home. Some will not but no one will ever be the same. Because regret itself can be lethal. Remorse, too. And the toxic second-guessing that gnaws away the edges of reality. 
all those if-only moments. Cordelia knows Ned must be, yet again, replaying that night over and over, as if somehow he could make it end a different way. But that is impossible. If-only is now his nightmare. His coffee, two sugars, one cream, sits untouched on the pitted metal table. Naomi Chang, who dramatically defended him, stays silent, staring out a meshed window. The door to the courtroom stays closed. The jury has been out two days and four hours. Commonwealth versus Bannister, three counts, operating under the influence, reckless driving, and vehicular homicide. Ned is the defendant, but her future is on the line too. Pips too, and Emma's. I didn't see him, T, Ned says. I didn't. I know, honey. She touches her hand to the back of his navy blazer, feels his shoulders trembling, feels the soft worsted of the too expensive suit, has a flash of prison orange canvas. Ned is tough and capable, but he'll never survive. He'd navigated his way up the corporate ladder. Now he faces 15 years in state prison where the power structure is terrifyingly different. He wasn't supposed to be there. He was trespassing. I know, honey. And I wasn't drunk. I had maybe two glasses of champagne. It was a party. But I know drunk. I know myself. I was tired, sure, after all that. But she isn't sure who he's explaining it to. Himself, maybe. He'd explained it on the stand allowed himself to be cross-examined by a gorgon of a DA, admitting he was tired, denying he was drunk, admitting he was driving fast, maybe, but he was the only car in the place, and then repeating those four words over and over, a refrain of anguish. I never saw him. I never saw him. One reporter had actually laughed. The headlines had not been kind. Real estate exec says, what guy? Cordelia knows from the nights he's writhed and tossed in their bed, and as she fails to find any way to comfort him, that he repeats that New Year's Eve moment in his mind as if it were something he could edit or alter or hit some cosmic undo button. The curved pavement of the parking garage, Ned's big Mercedes barreling up toward the exit as skateboarder Randall Tennant careens down. The younger man trespassing, certainly in the private building. Ned had been exactly where he belonged, and Randall Tennant hadn't. But only one had survived. The punishment for trespassing is not, usually, death. Except this time. She'd been home with Pip and Emma, as she'd told everyone, over and over, and a little angry she'd admitted that, too, after everyone kept asking, to have been left alone with two sniffy, whining kids while Ned had lorded it over the Bacchanalian fireworks party at his lofty Harborview office. Apparently, the champagne had been unending, no matter what Ned said. And now, their lives hang in the balance. And that damn jury, ten men and two women, who would leave and go back to lives of whatever, have no idea how much power they wield over her future. She tries to imagine that. Ned gone, his pillow empty, his place at the dinner table vacant, Cordelia herself either doomed or free, their children constantly having to explain what happened to their once-revered father. One mistake, one misturn, one wrong word. Thank you for listening to this clip provided to you by Macmillan Audio. To hear more, look for this title wherever audiobooks are sold.